What's going on, everybody? Just wanted to make this intro to let you know that this is part two of the episode with Dr. Paul Nazary. The second part was even doper. Uh, we spoke about recovery tools, what's important, like sleep, how long should a nap be? Then he mentioned an interesting thing called the nappuccino. It's, it's pretty dope. We spoke about how much protein you should have, calories, how to prevent future injuries, current model of the healthcare system. We go into detail with a lot of things. You guys are really gonna enjoy this. So you know, let, let's just get right to it. Let's go. Saying I'm distant is modest. It took me about a month to find out my nephew stuck in Rikers over some gun charges, and he ain't tripping the slightest. Because so there's a lot of information out there that talks about all kinds of different recovery tools. Should we do cupping? Should we do interneumatic compression like Normatec boots? Um, you know, what, what should we do? Above and beyond, the most important things that you can do for your body to recover are sleep well and get enough protein in your diet. Get enough, and not just protein, calories in general, but get enough protein in your diet to be able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis in your system and get enough sleep. We know that during sleep, you release a lot of the type of hormones that allow you to heal and allow your tissues to grow. For example, insulin-like growth factor one and growth hormone. Two major hormones that significantly get released more when you're asleep compared to when you're awake. In general, most adults need seven to nine hours of sleep. If you are a recreational athlete, you need eight to nine. If you're you know, division one or a professional athlete, you really technically need nine to 11 hours of sleep for optimal recovery. This is hard to get this much sleep, it really is. And no, napping during the day is not the same thing. <laughs> I, I was yeah. I was thinking that. You're I was hoping like, that it would be, right? Yeah, if you nap, you'd be good. Right, right. It, when you think about napping, it's okay to nap during the day, but we don't really count it as part of your full night's sleep. It's different in how you kind of release certain hormones, and it's different as far as the stages of sleep that you get into. I don't recommend that naps be longer than 20 or 25 minutes, honestly, because then you start to get into deeper cycles of sleep, and then you start to wake up. You ever you sleep for like an hour, an hour and a half, and you wake up like super groggy? Yeah. Like, you should never do that. You should really sleep for about 20 or 25 minutes. Just stay in that earlier stage of sleep, you know? And what generally works well, like let's say you want to take like a midday nap, for example, like a 2 o'clock to 2.30 kind of nap or 2 to 2.20 kind of nap. There's this thing called a nappuccino, right? They talk <laughs> about either taking a caffeine pill or drinking caffeine right before you take the nap. Caffeine generally takes about 20 to 25 minutes to really optimally flow into your bloodstream, right? So if you take the caffeine pill or you drink a cup of coffee and then you go straight to sleep and you take your nap and you wake up after 25 minutes, you hit a high. You hit a big high because all of a sudden the caffeine's flowing through your system and you just slept and took a nap for 20, 25 minutes. It recharges you, right? So that nappuccino actually does work. A nappuccino. Nappuccino, okay. man. I got to add that All to right. the toolbox. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you do want to be careful with naps. You don't want to take them too close to sleep. Think of it as like eating, right? Would you want to eat too close to your meal? No, right? If your meal is the sleep, you wouldn't want to take a nap too close to your bedtime. Mm. So really, you want it to be several hours your nap to be several hours before your actual bedtime. If you go to bed at 10 o'clock, your nap shouldn't be around like six or seven. Your nap can be around two or three, but it shouldn't be around six or seven, if that makes sense, you know? But sleep is really so underestimated. So sleep, mm -hmm. biggest tool for recovery, number one, above and beyond, I don't care what all these trends say, sleep is number one. 
and nutrition is number two. Let's talk about how much protein is an appropriate amount, amount of protein for you to get in your diet. So if you're a sedentary person, you don't exercise, the usual recommendation is 0.8 to 1.0 grams per kilogram of body weight. Now you may need to do that conversion because in America we do pounds, right? So you might need to convert your pounds to kilograms and then you can get the amount of grams of protein that you need. If you're an endurance athlete, okay, you do some, some strength training, but you're more of an endurance athlete, marathon runner or something like that. It's 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, okay? If you're more of a strength athlete, it's about 1.5 or 1.6 to 2 grams per kilogram of body weight, okay, if you're more of a strength athlete. Now, if you are a bodybuilder or a calisthenics athlete, you're putting a ton of strain on your system, you might want to go somewhere between 2 to 3 grams per kilogram of body weight. This is what the research suggests. Um, these are general guidelines, but they're, they're pretty damn close to what you really should be getting in your diet. Okay, so it depends on how active you are, right? And that's how much protein you should be getting. Now, when it comes to total calories in your diet, this is a harder number to kind of calculate. There are all kinds of calculators online that you can utilize for estimated, um, for estimated requirements. But your best bet for figuring out exactly or close to exactly how many calories you need in your diet on a, on a daily basis to actually have your what's called your basal metabolic rate recorded, right? And this is usually done in a lab situation, and you can you can pay for it in Manhattan or Long Island. They've got plenty of places that will do this for you. It's very simple. You go to a facility. You're typically in a fasted state. You do not eat anything. They need to know how many calories you're burning. What what the basal metabolic rate is is how many calories your body burns on a day in and day out basis at complete rest. Like literally, if you did nothing all day, you did absolutely nothing, you just sat in that chair the entire day, you just folded your hands and relaxed, how many calories would you burn, right? There's three main different ways that we burn calories, okay? There's the basal metabolic rate, which is how much we just need to sustain our life to live, right? We need uh, to, we burn calories through something called TEF, the thermic effect of food. So believe it or not, the digestive system ability to break down food requires you burning calories. <laughs> you can't burn calories. I mean, I'm sorry, you can't break down food unless you burn calories, right? So technically eating breaks down in your system and you burn calories to do so. Now that's only about 10% of what you burn. Don't get me wrong. Okay, because <laughs> anyone, anyone hearing this right yeah. now would be like, oh really, I can right. eat food and burn calories? Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> it's a very minimal, it's about 10% of the calories that you burn per day, okay? <laughs> so it's not a lot. Uh, it's, you know, it's somewhere between like 150 and 200 calories to do that all day. And then the third major thing besides basal metabolic rate and the thermic effect of food is activity level. Right? So how active are you? If you look at these calculators online, what do they ask you? How active are you? Yeah. I'm mildly active. I'm moderately active. I'm you know significantly active. And you can estimate that. You know, There's no perfect hard science to it, but you can estimate how many calories you might burn from running a mile or from weightlifting for 30 minutes. Or A lot of that's going to depend on how much rest you have in between when you're weightlifting or you know, what kind of training you're doing. So it's way too vague for me to really say exactly how many calories you're going to burn from like running or, or elliptical or rowing or weight training. It's very difficult. But this is how you determine how many calories you need, right? Those three factors. What's your basal metabolic rate, which again, there's calculators online for estimated basal metabolic rate. Or you can go to a lab that will actually give you your exact basal metabolic rate. You go there in a fasted state and they'll tell you. 
Uh, for most normal people, it's like 15 or 1600 calories, something like that. Maybe up to 2000 calories a day for most normal people. Um, you know, maybe if you have, if you're somebody who's like a, a professional basketball player and you know, you're 250 pounds or you're like LeBron James kind of guy, mm -hmm. you might at rest burn 25 or, or 3000 calories or 4000 calories. Who the hell knows, right? But a lot more calories than a normal person would, right? Right. Yeah, so those are the three ways that you burn calories. But protein is a, is a big source of muscle protein synthesis and of recovery. Um, protein, believe it or not, actually gets absorbed even better in your system when you complement it with carbohydrates. So a lot of people are like very anti-carb in today's world. Um, they shouldn't be anti-carb. Carbs actually help you to be able to absorb protein. That's my favorite diet right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I definitely can tell that I'm not getting enough protein. Um, but I, I agree. You feel a lot better, too, when you're eating right. I know um, going back to recovery with sleep, uh, the biggest tools that's helped me is vinyl ordering to track my sleep and APOP bed to control the temperature. Yes. And you generally yes. feel a lot better. I, you know, I love that you included this, um, this blanket that, that you're talking about here because... You know, the optimal sleeping conditions, believe it or not, are somewhere between 60 and 65 degrees. And the reason for that is because our core temperature decreases as we get ready for bed. Our core temperature increases as we start to wake up and go throughout our day, right? And if we don't reduce our core body temperature as we prepare for bed, then what can't we do? We can't release enough melatonin. Melatonin helps us to fall asleep. And so if your core body temperature is staying warm right before bed and you're not releasing the melatonin that you need to fall asleep, guess what? You have trouble falling asleep and your sleep quality is compromised as a sequela of that. So, you know, living in these Brooklyn apartments, sometimes I feel like the heat is way too <laughs> ramped up. And like, I, dude, I, I, and you know, my girlfriend's not the kind of person who likes to sleep with like the windows open and sometimes she'll shower at night or whatever. I'm like, dry your hair because we're keeping, <laughs> we're keeping the windows open. You know what I mean? Like the windows are gonna be open. If in order for me to get good, I I notice myself actually that I'm irritable if it's if it's hot at night. Same. I can't get to bed. I'm sweaty. I can't. Fall. I don't. I feel restless. And yeah. there's a reason for that. It's because hmm. I I'm not releasing the proper hormones that are supposed to help me fall asleep. And naturally, my core body temperature isn't coming down. It comes down from sunset until you sleep. Your core body temperature should be coming down. This is the reason why you should not perform vigorous activity at least two to three hours before bed. When you look at the literature, it's okay to exercise at night. It's okay. But you should not be performing vigorous activity. If it's light, if it's yoga, if it's uh, like a mild yoga, or if it's you know mobility type of training, or stretching, or foam rolling, or something like that, it's totally fine. But if you're having a real aggressive bout of strength training or hypertrophy training with like music blaring in your headphones, not good for sleep. You need to ramp down your central nervous system during that sunset to bedtime. Mm. Yeah. So The Rock needs to listen to this then. Because <laughs> I know he's a, a big fan of like the nightly intense workouts. Not a good idea. Gonna affect the quality of your sleep. Is there anything that you could recommend or any advice for people to prevent future injuries? Sure, yeah. We know that the best way to prevent injury is to be strong. So strength training is your number <coughs> one tool for injury prevention. Now, 
of course, it must be done in a regulated fashion. You must not overload your system too much too soon. The biggest reason why people get injured is because they're doing too much too soon. So yes, you want progressive overload, but don't perform um, as if you're an Olympian on day one. Let's put it that way. So strength training is the most important thing. And some of the biggest lifts that are so important are deadlifting and squatting, uh, two of the most important lifts. Depending on the activity that you're trying to perform is going to determine how you should try to prevent injury. For example, if you are a high school or a college athlete and you're doing kind of sport in which you have intermittent bouts of change of direction and change of speed, think soccer, think basketball, right? A lot of change of direction, a lot of change of speed, acceleration, deceleration. You have to make sure that you have good landing mechanics you have to make sure that you have good planting mechanics and you have to make sure you have good push-off mechanics, right? And you have to make sure that you can pump the brakes. A lot of people are focused on speed, but not a lot of people are focused on how to control their speed. Think of it as like a bull in a china shop. Mm. You can run through a china shop and break every dish you want. You're going to have a, a, a store full of broken dishes, right? You need to be able to put the brakes on quickly. If you're in these sort of intermittent sports, basketball, soccer, things of that nature. So controlling your speed, being able to accelerate, being able to change direction, controlling your landing and making sure that you're not falling into, for example, a knee valgus, like your knees are falling in towards one another when you land, right? Those are all really important things. Strength and those other factors play a big role in preventing injuries in sports. I feel like, like a lot of people don't know this type of stuff. Like, I notice for me, like, from going for, with you, I'll be watching, like, videos of people doing sports or whatever, and I notice little things like that where, like, their knee is collapsing in or their hip is collapsing in. I, I don't know. I feel like we're just not educated on that type of stuff for whatever reason. Well, I do want, you know, I want to clarify. Sometimes you really cannot avoid putting your knee or hip into certain positions. Think of, like, a basketball player when they cut or change direction. They have to, in order for them to have the mechanical advantage to make that change and that shift, they have to be able to get their knee or their, or their hip into that position. So it's not necessarily about avoiding getting it into that position all the time. I mean, sometimes it is, but other times it's about the adaptability of the athlete. So does the athlete have the ability to get into that range of motion and into that movement while still remaining strong and not causing excessive stress onto their ligaments and structures, right? Do they have the control of that joint? And can those muscles support them even in that motion to be able to avoid the injury, right? And many times the answer for these elite, elite athletes is yes, they do have the strength because they're doing the right training with the right providers, with the right strength and conditioning coaches, the right physical therapists, et cetera, right? They have access to the best people in the world. I feel like uh, anybody who's interested in sports, even if it's recreational, they should have a... Uh a coach or a physical therapist or something because there's a lot of movements that you're you're not aware that you're doing it incorrectly. Right. And, you know, most people don't have access to what a professional athlete right. would have access to. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And, you know, <coughs> it's, it's great that you bring this up because I feel like technique and form are things that are so underestimated. People are doing things wrong so often and they don't even know that they're doing it wrong. And they don't even know that they're kind of like um, adding on to the dysfunction. <laughs> And as a result, it's eventually going to, you're eventually going to kind of like break down in a way, right? You're going to have some problems that occur because you're doing things wrong. I really do believe, I honestly believe that moving forward in this healthcare landscape, we're going to see a lot more of a reliance on physical therapists, athletic trainers, personal trainers, 
I believe that we're headed towards a preventative medicine type of society. I think a lot of people are more than ever before focused on trying to prevent injury. And I think part of the reason that the healthcare system is so broken in this country is because nobody wants to pay for that kind of stuff, right? It, it all has to be out of pocket. We are a very reactive society. We are a very reactive country. And we make decisions based on after the injury happened, after the cancer happened, after the whatever happened, right? We're not focused on making sure that we prevent this stuff from happening. We're not focused on making sure that we eat the right diet to make sure that we don't sustain these sort of chronic illnesses, these sort of uh, metabolic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, which we know leaves you subject to so many other conditions. Think, if you even think about the COVID-19 pandemic, who are the people that are most likely to be influenced by COVID-19? People who are overweight. People mm -hmm. who are overweight, people who are obese, people who have diabetes, people who have, have high blood pressure. So you, you think about how a pandemic can affect a population it certainly has influenced the obese and overweight population so much more than the healthy population. Now, certainly a lot of people who have no other comorbidities and have no other health conditions have died from the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm not trying to say that these aren't sad situations. They happen, but they happen significantly less if you're within a normal weight range and you exercise and you have a healthy diet and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so it's very, the evidence is very clear on this. And the CDC has even come out and talked about that, right? So I think we're going to head more and more in the direction of people really caring about their overall health and wellness. Um, and I think it's a very exciting time, actually, because I'm, that's the space that I'm in. I want to serve the kind of people who actually care about not getting chronically ill. <laughs> Yeah, so for me, I like I have no plans to like stop going to your practice. Like I feel like it was just a great investment, and that's the way I look at it. At it, even when I budget for my finances, you're investing in yourself, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like you know when I get old, I want to still have as much use of my body as possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember prior to going to you, I was it was like I was in pain all the time, no matter what I did. If I was sitting, if I was walking, if I was running, like ninety percent of my day was in pain. So. Just from going to that, from that situation to where I am now, it's totally worth the money, in my opinion. Right. Well, pain is a very interesting motivating factor, right? And something that I always have to make sure I clarify to patients is, listen, I can symptomatically get you better in like a couple sessions. And remember, you even said after your first session with me, you felt great, right? Yeah. Symptomatically, I can get people better pretty quickly, right? Because I know how to modulate pain very well. I know exactly how the pain system works. With that said, in order for us to achieve our ultimate goal, which is not having this problem at all anymore, and getting to the root cause, we need to work on flexibility. We need to work on stability. We need to work on strength training, right? And those are things that take a lot more time. And these are the things a lot of people don't have patience for. Um, but I think, you know, I'm always super excited when I get to see some of the progress that I make with my clients. And they, I think they see how excited I am for them. And they're like, well, I guess I should be more excited about this. This is great. Right? You know, we, we talk so often about maintaining as much independence as we can for as long as we can. And something that we really underestimate in this country is focusing on quality of life as opposed to quantity of life. Very often it's like, oh, that person lived to be 95 or that person lived to be 85 or whatever it is. Well, okay, were they enjoying their life? Were they... Yeah. 
were they well mentally, physically, mm-hmm. right? Like, did they enjoy the things that they did with their life? Were they able to do the things that they wanted? Or for the last five to ten years, were they bedridden, right? Uh, those things make a difference in, you know, what we call quality-adjusted life years. You know what I mean? Like, you you want to have good quality of life for as long as possible, right? You want to maintain independence for as long as possible. And, of course, I also work at a hospital. I work at Staten Island University Hospital in, on Staten Island, of course. And, um, you know, I see this all the time. I work with patients who are more on the elderly side there. Um, I work there, of course, less often than I work in my practice. Uh, but, you know, I always see the kind of debility that can occur when you have these sorts of comorbidities. If you don't have comorbidities, you're so much more likely to heal well. We know that people who have diabetes don't heal well. Their skin doesn't heal well. Their muscles don't heal as well. Their ligaments don't heal as well. Their bones don't heal as well, right? So if you can avoid these sort of metabolic diseases, you're going to set yourself up for much more success in the future. Amen. I felt that one in my soul. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You think of uh, stoicism, that's one of the principles. It's like it doesn't matter how long you live. It matters how you live. Yeah. The quality of your life. Yeah, 100% agree, you know, and for me personally, one of my favorite quotes is actually by Jackie Robinson, and it's actually, if you go to City Field in, at the, you know, the Mets Stadium, on the inside, it wraps around the inside of their stadium, and uh, it says that a life is not so important except in the impact it has on other lives, right? And so what I'm really trying to do with my practice and with my career, really, is try to have as much of a positive influence as I can on as many people as possible. That is, in a way, it sort of feeds my ego. Selfishly, it feeds my ego, right? But I also know that like, if I can positively influence one person, they can go ahead and positively influence other people. They can improve the quality of life of other people. So I wanna try to you know, affect the quality of life as, of as many people as I can, because my life is, is pretty insignificant compared to like the whole universe, right? Um, all of our lives individually are so insignificant compared to the whole universe. But if you can pass along a really great message and you can pass along a really positive shed a really positive light in somebody's life they can go ahead and do that for somebody else and the ball just keeps rolling right mm-hmm. it's sort of an avalanche and how that kind of works you know um and one you know one of my favorite books is um it's called the go-giver and i was talking to one of my colleagues about it today and uh, it talks all about the uh, five laws of stratospheric success and it's a guru who kind of shows this guy who's a go-getter who's actually failing. He's a go-getter, but he's actually failing. So he goes to this guru, and the guru tells him, listen, you don't need to be so much of a go-getter. You need to be more of a go-giver, right? And he tells him, like, give more often. You know, every time I give, I've noticed that I've gotten back tenfold. I give once, I get back ten times. I give once, I get back ten times. So if we can kind of all live in this manner, we'll all give a lot, and we'll all get a lot, you know? Pretty cool. And I just hope everyone listening now, like, take this to heart. Because not only physically, but also mentally as well, you know, they go hand in hand. Um, I remember we had Nicole on the podcast and she's a mental health therapist. And she was just she was speaking on exactly what you were speaking on, just on a mental um, on like just mental health wise. And now it's good that we have now the physical health wise aspect of this. So like everyone that's listening to this right now. Uh, it just shows how important these are. Like there's a very important, especially since we, we need to tackle these things now instead of when we're older, when it's slowly becoming too late for any significant changes. So I really 
do appreciate you coming on here and saying everything because I'm going to go listen back to this and I'm going to take everything that you said, you know, and apply it to whenever I work out. And I hope everyone listening does the same too. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I have to say that physical and mental health are so intertwined with one another. Mm-hmm. We, we know that when people perform a bout of aerobic training, for example, they release a whole flood of endorphins and they feel great about themselves. They're in a much better mood. And, you know, I've, I've even had clients who say to me, like, I don't know, like, I'm feeling better physically and I am able to exercise, eat more easily without pain. And I'm more patient now with my family and I have a better relationship with my girlfriend. And I notice that I'm more productive at work, mm. right? And all of these things are going to impact your mental health as well. You're going to have more mental bandwidth and a greater mental capacity in your life when you're not always thinking about pain. You're not always thinking about the dysfunction. You're not always thinking negatively about what's happening to your system. When you truly understand what's actually happening with your body and what you can do to help yourself, that's the most empowering thing that I can give people is education on what's going on with your body and what's not actually going on with your body. Because there's a lot of preconceived notions of what's going on and what's not going on. There's a lot of what we call nocebo talk, which is the opposite of placebo. Nocebo talk is when there's a negative narrative associated with what's going on, which then causes you to over-catastrophize your situation. Right, And so how does that mentally affect you when you think that something is wrong with you that's never going to get better, right? Like Rashawn was saying, uh, his doctor told him that he shouldn't, he should stop running. And <laughs> Rashawn was like, this can't be my life, right? That is mentally devastating for somebody in their 20s or 30s to hear or anybody to hear. And you could be in your 70s if you heard that. That would be devastating, right? So I think we've got to be more um, upfront and transparent with what are your options, what can you do, what should you not do for now? Let's try to get back to that. We may, we listen, I don't guarantee anybody anything. We may or may not be able to get back to it. But I'll tell you what, 99% of the time, I help people get back to what they need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, <clears throat> a selfish question to ask. Okay. Um, do you have any advice for someone who, well, I'm going to use me, for example, because it's a selfish question. Okay. Um, I now work in an office. Um, so before, when I was seeing you, um, I would work out in the morning. And then I would spend the day like walking on my feet. So I was used to that. But now that I'm in office, I'll work out in the morning and then I'm sitting in a chair for eight hours. Right. And I noticed that I felt a little different. So I went for a run the first time uh, earlier this week and I felt pain in my uh, lower back, specifically the left side. And I was like, what the hell? So I took some days off. I went through like the old routine that you gave me. I went through everything step by step. And I went for a run again, and I felt a lot better, but it feels different. And um, my question is, do you have any advice for someone who works in an office and they're sitting all day, but they want to become an endurance athlete? Yes, I, I have very specific advice for that. What we find is most effective at preventing musculoskeletal injury for people who sit a lot is to change positions and to change positions often. I tell people to change positions every 30 minutes to one hour if they must sit. But my real recommendation is if you can change and switch between sitting and standing, that's most ideal. If you want to try to sit for a couple of hours, stand for a couple of hours. Sit for a couple of hours, stand for a couple of hours, right? And then, of course, in between, I give people what we call movement snacks, right? So it's not a full meal. You're not doing a full workout. But 
if you're sitting for a long time, guess what? Your neck muscles that hold your head up, they're getting tired. The muscles that hold your shoulders in the right position, they're getting tired. Your hips are in a certain position for too long of a time. They're going to get very tight, right? So I'll show people how to stretch their hips. I'll show people how to recruit their mid-back muscles. I'll show people how to recruit their neck muscles. I'll show people how to do specific stretches that open up their chest or their mid-back area, right? And now with a lot of people working from home, they have like a whole gym set up in their house. Or if they're in, right? I mean, they do. Or if they happen to be in an office, it's very easy to have a couple of bands and a foam roller in there. And you can honestly use anything. You can use your desk. You can use the door. You can use a door frame to stretch your chest. You can use your desk to stretch your lats, right? And there's so many different exercises and stretches that you can do that you can literally do right at your desk. But the most important thing to do is to change positions and to change positions often. Outside of that, I always recommend if you can um, get outside during like a lunch break or something like that, get some exposure to sunlight, move around, you know, don't be so sedentary all day long because this is going to affect your overall mood too, which then affects your nervous system, which then affects the kind of pain that you feel, right? Mm. We, believe it or not, when you think about people who have neck pain or low back pain, very often they find that these people have high dissatisfaction with their work. They actually find that these people are not happy at work. They don't enjoy what they do for work. So I'm not saying that's always the case. But also, are you fulfilling, are you doing a meaningful job that you find purpose in and that is fulfilling you? And if that's not happening and you don't want to be at work in the first place, then you're going to have a much more sensitive system. You're going to be much more likely to snap at your colleague or at your boss, right? You're going to be much more likely to be like, I can't get comfortable here. Mm -hmm. You just feel like so annoyed, so irritated, yeah. right? All of these things play a factor. This is why I say it's not just about the physical realm. You have to take a look at, is this stimulating me intellectually? Is this stimulating me mentally? Is this stimulating me emotionally, spiritually? All of these things are part of being, you know, a well-rounded, quote-unquote, well person, right? This is all a part of, of wellness. So that, that's what I would say. Change position early, change position often. Try to alternate between standing and sitting during a lunch break. Try to go for a walk and be a little bit more mobile. Um, utilize some movement snacks every hour or two. Uh, the movement snack for you is going to be different depending on where it hurts and where you feel tight. So, for example, you, if you feel tightness in your lower back from sitting a lot, you may want to do some backward bends. You may want to do some yoga poses, for example, like a baby cobra or a cobra. You may want to work on some hip flexor stretching, right? Because we know that if you think about the psoas major, which is a major hip flexor, it starts at the transverse processes of L1 to L5, meaning it starts at the lower back, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So believe it or not, some of your hip muscles have a very, very strong impact on the flexibility or the pain sensations that you're experiencing at your lower back. Even though it's a hip muscle, it really starts at your lower back. Uh, okay. Like that. I'm going to uh, declare this on the podcast. Uh, I make it a thing where every year I declare something that I'm going to accomplish for the year. You should expect to see me very soon because <laughs> what I'm declaring this year is that I want to run uh, a marathon. I think you had mentioned that to me, to me before, yeah. And yeah. do you have a specific marathon that you're targeting? Honestly, right now, no. I just know that I want to run that distance. Got it. Okay. And, you know, because sometimes you have to really get into the lottery or, like, get selected to run that marathon way ahead of time, right? Yeah. If you join one of these, like, charitable organizations, they'll let you run. You yeah. still have to pay to run. Yeah. But they'll let you run in it. Or you could do, I think, what's called a nine by nine plus one, 
Yeah. Uh, so you can do a bunch of different 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons that allow you to qualify for New York City. Yeah, even if I can't run a marathon, I still want to do a virtual. I feel like that's better because what I enjoy most about uh, endurance training is that it's not only a body thing, it's a mind thing. Like you have to have the strong mental willpower to suffer through miles and miles of running. Right. So it's just you, yourself, your thoughts, and running. There's a lot of power in having that kind of mental will, right? So like willing your way through things. Now, of course, if you're feeling physical pain and it's getting progressively worse, you need to listen to your body and back off. But yes, during you know marathon training, a lot of people really start to get into these mental struggles and mental battles with themselves, mm-hmm. you know? And they're like, man, can I really do this? Can I really get through this, right? And what I always tell my athletes when they're mentally struggling to get to that finish line or mentally struggling to run those longer runs is trust your training. You've ran an 18-miler, a 20-miler, another 20-miler. You're going to be able to do this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you have to trust your training. You've put in the work. You know, if you haven't put in the work, you should worry, <laughs> you know? Mm. But if you put in the work, you've earned it. There's no reason to be nervous. I, you know, I took a certification exam a few weeks ago. And people ask me, like, are you worried? Are you nervous? I'm like, not at all. And they're like, well, how? I'm like, I've been doing these techniques for five or six years as a practitioner. And I've been studying for this exam for over three months. I'm not nervous. I just want to do it. <laughs> I'm ready. I'd do it right now. You want to do it right now? Saturday, you know, Saturday night. I'll take the exam right now, you know? So I, t- so I took it. I did well on it. But, um, but the point is that, like, if you are well prepared, you shouldn't be worried. I agree with that, too, because you helped me run uh, my first half marathon. Right. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm used to running, you know, distances. I'm good. But I remember I got to the nine-mile mark, and then that's when it was a mental battle for me. Right. I'm like, damn, I still got this much more to go. I'm like, I'm tired. It's hot outside. Right. And I mentally wanted to quit, but because I kept putting in so much effort in the training, I'm like, nah, I got this. Right. And then after completing it, now I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should go run 10 miles tomorrow. Right, you right. Know? You feel pretty encouraged by that, right? So yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with running the next day if you ran a half marathon. Maybe not 10 miles, but a very classic thing to do is like a, you know, a, a two or three mile run. Some people call it like a shakeout run or whatever um, right after the run, right after the race, you know. For the people that's listening who's interested in uh, seeing you because they're, maybe they have pain or they want to progress in uh, running or whatever sports they're in, where can they find you? I would say the best way to find me or contact me is probably through my Instagram account. Um, I'm at the Game Plan PT, mm-hmm. uh, so that would be the best way to find me. And uh, you know, my email address is Paul at thegameplanpt.com. I'm happy to answer any questions that come my way. Uh, if you haven't noticed already, I'm a big time nerd when it comes to this stuff. Like, what got me into this was the fact that I was an athlete. And what's really kept me going is the ability to continue to help other athletes achieve their goals. And for me, this doesn't feel a lot like work, to be honest with you. This feels a lot like fun. And one of my biggest things is that I'm always learning, and that's the part that's so interesting to me. There's always more to learn about neuroanatomy. There's always more to learn about the musculoskeletal system. And even more so, I think at a certain point, when you get skilled enough, and I'm not saying this to sound arrogant, but I, you know, I've seen a lot, and I, and I know how to handle a lot of different situations, a lot of cases at this point in my career. I've seen thousands of clients, 
the thing that's always most fun for me is that everybody has a different story and everybody has a different goal and everybody has a different reality of why that goal is so important to them individually. And that's the thing that I really have fun with, right? Because treating an Achilles injury or a hip injury or a back injury at this point is basic for me. I could do it with my eyes closed and my hands behind my back. You know what I mean? But what I, inspires me all the time is understanding the person and trying to figure out how to keep them consistent and motivated to continue to participate for their own best self-interest, right? So that, that's the thing that really, um, really keeps me like alive and, and, and like excited to go to work. You know, I can tell that too, because from uh, your content that I see, I, I like, it's very informative too. And you can tell that you actually enjoy the job. Like, uh, I see your stories where it's like, uh, can you tell where they have the injury? Right. And I'm always wrong every time I guess. <laughs> you got a 50-50 shot every time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it's interesting. Um, so I, I appreciate that. I feel like we need more people in a world like you. So yeah. definitely appreciate that. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. I re you know, I have to say I have, you know, part of the reason why I left the old practice that I was at, um, you know, it was a great place to work. But the biggest thing I wanted to have more time to do was to have a bigger impact on the general population, on a, a wider audience and working with clients one-on-one -on -one is great it's my favorite thing to do I like it more than anything else but something that I really want to be able to do is to create you know ex an exercise library for example with some voiceovers or to create some content that talks about the proper technique for each specific activity or sp each specific movement pattern and what are some of the cues that I utilize to make sure that people do this the right way and what are some of the things that people themselves do wrong that then cause injury? Again, all about preventative medicine. How can we prevent injury in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, And that'll save the system a lot of money down the line. The problem with the healthcare system is because a lot of healthcare insurances are really for-profit, they're mm -hmm. all about kicking the can down the road, right? Yeah. All they care about is the profit margin in this quarter, in these last three months, mm -hmm. right? They don't really care about how things look in 20 years, even though in reality, in 20 years, it's going to be a mess. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. We spend more and more money these days trying to treat low back pain with injections, with surgery, with medication, with opioids, which have called, caused a whole mess. But, but we spend all this money trying to treat low back pain, and we're not any better at treating low back pain. <laughs> we're worse at treating low back pain. It's costing us more per episode of low back pain. Why is that happening? And the reason is we're looking in the wrong places. We're not looking at people's financial responsibilities and how they're taking care of their finances and are they in a good mental state, right? Mm -hmm. Finances can cause a lot of stress, right? So we know that if people are not in a good financial situation, if people are not satisfied at work, if people are not mentally well, they're going to be more likely to experience back pain. Back pain is super multifactorial. It's not just related to your physical well-being. It's related to so many other factors, so many other psychosocial factors that impact your, um, your interpretation of pain, right? And much like you said, Constantine, what did other providers say to you, right? Because the narrative that other providers give to you can absolutely impact the outcome and can absolutely predict whether or not the functional outcome you have is going to be good or bad, whether or not that acute bout of pain that you have is going to become chronic or not, right? Yeah. So these are really important factors um, that we need to take into consideration. My question is, uh, I feel like something I've heard you say a lot today is that the, the, about the narrative that you're giving. Yeah. 
So how do we create a system where we're like me or Daryl as a patient, we walk in and we're not getting that negative narrative. Right. That just seems to be like commonplace in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I feel right. like it's, I think outside of you, I've met maybe like one other doctor who has like the same approach as you. Right. So it's a really solid question. Um, it's very difficult to answer, but here's my, my best shot at answering this for you. Do you know how many years it takes for literature and evidence to make its way into academic studies? Meaning how many years do we have to have of research for it to actually be taught at an academic institution? Mm. It's about 17 years. Jeez. So we need to study something and be so quote-unquote sure of it for about 15 to 17 years before we actually teach it to people who are in medical school programs, PT programs, PA programs, etc., etc. Wow. A lot of these things have a weird way of funneling through and just making their way through even though they're not really correct, right? Even though certain tests are not very reliable, they're not very accurate, right? They're not very valid. Um, they still make their way through. And we get taught some of the quote-unquote wrong things, so to speak, right? And so a large part of this has been the medical hierarchy in which the medical provider is made to educate you on what's wrong with you. Instead of telling you or asking you, you know, what your goals are. And if we have this patient-centered approach to care, which I think is the solution, I think you need to really take the patient into consideration at all times and make decisions together. But part of it is me informing the patient on what I think is going on. But I then also have to tell them, be honest, but tell them, hey, here is what typically happens when you have this kind of condition. Here's how long this typically takes. Here are the courses of actions that typically work. The reason that people don't know all the actions that typically work is because they're so behind in the medical literature. So what what medical providers need to do is care enough to read the literature. They really need to go above, like I go above and beyond to read every month's edition of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, JOSPT. So I get that every month. I usually see one or two research articles in there that I like. I read them. I also happen to be very involved in the American Physical Therapy Association, and they bring things to light all the time. So I look into it when I hear from them. So you need to really be on top of the medical literature as a provider. What is the incentive to be on top of it? Some people are very motivated by just clinical excellence. I'm very motivated by being the best at what I do. But many times, you know, people, they're going to get paid the same whether or not they are on top of this literature or not. And a lot of people, even though they're in the medical field and they take this like this oath to do no harm and all this kind of stuff, you know, they're only going to do what they get paid for, right? They're only going to do as much as their employer pays them to do. You know, this is one of the problems. You know, when you take that oath, you really do have to commit a big portion of your life to, to making sure that you're on top of the evidence and on top of the research because, you know, you have people's health and well-being in your hands. You can't take that lightly, you know? Um, people are relying on you. And I'm not saying this to tell medical practitioners that they should put a ton of stress and pressure on themselves. But if you're going to go into this field, you know, be really ready to, to learn and to study and to absorb as much as you can. I've, in these five or six years that I've been practicing, I've learned one million times more than what I learned when I was in PT school. Because I started to be able to pick the things that I wanted to learn. And I studied them and I read them and I got really good at knowing this stuff. You know, I, I was on top of the evidence. So when you ask, you know, what can we as a, as a society or culture do, 
I think the accountability has to be on the medical provider to want to learn this stuff. I have no idea how they're going to be more motivated to learn this stuff other than they need to go into medicine for the right reason. And I think a lot of people go into medicine for the wrong reason. A lot of med people go into medicine for the money, right? They get paid very well. If you're a medical physician, I mean, you're making you're making quarter million, half a million dollars a year, easy, very easy. You know, I know a radiologist that I'm friends with at the hospital, he makes 400 grand a year, you know what I mean? And he's a radiologist. He sits there and reading x-rays and MRIs, and that's fine. But I'm saying, is the real reason he got into the medical field to read x-rays and MRIs, does he really care, or did he want to make money, right? Mm, yeah. So, so, and then, again, we live in a capitalistic nation. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to make money. I'm all, I'm very pro-capitalist. I obviously am a business owner myself, but the way I've always looked at it is be willing to earn your money, right? Mm. Be willing to work for the money that you're receiving. Mm. Be, I've always said, like, over-deliver, right? Over-deliver so that people actually think that you're undervaluing yourself. Like, I want people when they after they come to me and be like, oh my God, it's all each other. This is a fucking bargain, you know. What I mean? This is a steal. Like this, this is a great deal, you know. Um, like I'm getting a full hour of this guy's time, and I'm learning all the stuff about my body, and it's translating into my everyday life, and literally changing how I live. That's worth my hundred fifty, hundred seventy five, two hundred dollars per week, or whatever the hell it is, right? I, I sorry to interrupt, but I tell people that all the time. Like when they're like, "Oh, you pay hundred fifty dollars, don't you have insurance?" I'm like, "It's the best investment I've ever made." <laughs> it's, it's, it's an investment in yourself, and I think we're gonna start to see a lot more people investing in themselves. I'm already seeing it. I get a lot of cash clients, and a lot of those cash clients come to me because they've been through the process. They've been to other providers, and they're like, "This was a waste of my time," you know, oh, yeah. time and money. Time and money, right? Because you're still paying. You still have a copay, right? Yeah. You still have a copay. It's not like you're going there for free. And even if you did go there for free, right? Like, you have to put a certain value on your time, honestly, at the end of the day. You know, that reminds me, um, there was a period in time, I think it was on a podcast, where you mentioned that what you would like to see in the healthcare system is that people get paid for their results and you know, not the work. It's funny because that was the next question I was going to ask you, but I felt like it was a little off topic. Well, what do you think about that? Like, uh, I've read where they feel there should be a results-orientated approach, I think. Yes. Where you pay for the results and not for just going to see a doctor. Yes. So, yeah, you know, med it's very hard to regulate this stuff because there are so many different private insurances. I mean, think about it. You've got Aetna, Cigna, TRICARE, Blue Cross Blue Shield, GHI. There's so many different insurances that nobody can really get on the same page. Now, what's the governing body that controls and oversees the whole federal program? Medicare, right? So Medicare is typically for people who either are 65 or older, or they have a mental or physical disability, but they're less than 65, right? These are the people who qualify for Medicare. So Medicare does try to regulate this performance-based incentive program. And they want you to report certain things, right, on your documentation. Now, I'm not a Medicare provider, so I don't know the specifics of this. But they do request that you record some specific data on outcomes. They want to see that you're recording information on um, specific outcomes. For example, a lower extremity functional scale or a, a shoulder, neck, disability kind of scale. So you're recording all these things and reporting them, right? And technically, they're looking at the minimally clinically important difference as far as change is concerned from the evaluation to the reevaluation. So they might ask you to do a reevaluation, let's say every 10 visits, how much better is the client getting objectively? Can they, if they have a shoulder problem, can they open a door more easily? 
Can they put their hand over their head to wash their head more easily? Can they open a jar more easily, right? All of those specific functional questions are what they're looking for from an objective perspective to see if you're doing a good job. Now, nobody's really regulating this. You can lie about it if you want. I mean, I'm not saying people do, but I'm sure people do. You know, People just make this stuff up. They don't even give the patient the actual scale. They just like make it up themselves. They could do that. you know. But technically, this is what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be recording this kind of stuff. I think it's a great idea to pay people based on results. I, I really do. It's just super hard to regulate because who's checking on this stuff? You know what I mean? Honestly, right? Like there's a lot of private insurances and they're not going to hire people just to check on these things. That's that's sunken cost for them. Unless, now here's, here's the one caveat, Medicare does hire auditors and these auditors go in there and they audit people's medical charts and they determine whether or not this person really needed the medical treatment that you provided to them. It's called medical necessity. So if they deem that the service that was provided was not medically necessary because they're not seeing that the client is making progress over a certain amount of time, they can go ahead and retrospectively say to you, you owe us this money back. Mm -hmm. So this is specifically Medicare, which is a federal program. And uh, this specifically happens if you start to overutilize a service. They want to make sure that people are not abusing the Medicare service. Medicare, even though I don't participate with them, they pay up front. Like you bill them, they pay. You bill them, they pay. But you start to bill them a certain amount after a certain point, they're going to start looking into you and start investigating and start auditing your charts. And if they deem that it's not medically necessary, you've got to reimburse them. You've got to pay them back. Um, yeah. The reason that I don't participate with Medicare, truthfully, is because every year there's a new policy. Every year they want more and they want to give you less. So they ask me for all these things but then they want to give me 3% less than they gave me the year before. You want me to work harder and to make less? That it's just It just doesn't work. It's going to eventually implode. It's not going to work. Yeah. Um, I, I really, again, this is why I think at some point we have to stop kicking the can down the road and fo- focus on preventing injury and focus on preventing chronic illness and chronic disease. And specifically, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. Those are the three things that we need to really work on because they cost the system the most amount of money. As far as the uh, incentivizing people type of program, there's so much like fraud and abuse and waste when it comes to stuff. This is why I truthfully wanted to get away as, as far as I could from the actual medical system because it really is so broken. It, it really is. It's terrible. They don't really reward results. They don't really reward skill. They don't really reward credentials or certifications. Like if I have a thousand certifications and I spent $100,000 in addition to my PT education, just getting better at what I do, they won't pay me a dollar more. They're going to pay me the same amount as they paid the, the new grad who graduated three weeks ago. Jeez. So, so, so this, is the, this is why I went more so the out-of-network cash-based route. I can afford to see less people provide a higher quality service, charge more for it, you know, be uh, deserving of that higher charge, and you know, I can rest my head comfortably at night. <laughs> Not worrying about it. So I have one final question. Sure. If you could use one sentence, whether it's a sentence you've heard before or you can create one on a spot that would describe your life's work or mission or goal, what would it be? Wow, that's a really, really very profound question. (laughs) 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 The one Um, to end it all. I am most motivated by trying to consistently be better every day. And 
I'm trying to consistently have as much of a positive influence on as many people as I possibly can. That would be my sentence. I, I want to have as much of a positive influence on as many people as I possibly can. I, I like that. I appreciate that. Paul, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, I will put your social media links in the description below. You guys need to go see him, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but seriously, though, take your health seriously. There, you can't put a price on your health ever. And this is the problem, is that many times we live in the kind of society and culture where, well, it'll get better. Well, it'll get better. Well, it'll get better. And it doesn't get better. It, and in fact, it stays the same or it gets worse and lingers for a long time. The longer a problem lasts, the harder it's going to be for me to help somebody. Because the chronicity of something starts to then influence the central nervous system. You're no longer just uh, affected at the site of the injury. Literally, the spinal cord and the brain are influenced as well now. How your brain interprets the pain signals have shifted. Your system has become sensitized to just feeling this way. So it's a lot harder for me to get you out of that state. So I guess my advice to people would be, don't feel like you're burdening or bothering the provider. This provider gets paid well to provide you with a service. If you went to a mechanic and your mechanic didn't explain to you what was wrong with your car, you would think that mechanic is an idiot, right? <laughs> so why do we not hold our, hold our medical providers to the same standard, right? Ask the medical provider, what do you think is going on? Why is it going on? How should I proceed? How long do you think this is going to take me? What are my next steps that are going to give me the best opportunity to get better, right? Sometimes we've got to be our own best advocates as clients or as patients when the medical system isn't working in our favor. Amen. I, I felt that way. That's, that's what happened in my situation because when he gave me that answer, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And I went home and I did like my own research and I kind of got like an idea of what was going on. And that's why I went back. I'm like, hey, you know, said this, but that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, many, time people, many times people feel very weird or uncomfortable because the doc, quote unquote, the doctor is the doctor, right? Like, yeah. I shouldn't question the doctor. No, you should question the doctor. The doctor works for you. You don't work for the doctor. You know what I'm saying? So, so you, you got to be willing to ask these questions and don't worry about hurting anybody's feelings. I love, when people ask me questions, I love it. I love it because I get the opportunity to educate you on what's going on. And if I'm not sure, guess what? We're going to talk it through to better understand these symptoms. And I have the an I always say this, but the answer is always there as long as I'm willing to listen, right? The patient will always give me the answer as long as I'm willing to listen to what they're telling me. That's why when I meet the first time with a patient, let's say my session's one hour, the first 20 to 30 minutes is just me talking to them and asking questions. Because if I don't have all that background information, how am I going to get the right answer? So you get, the, you get all the information you need, you get the right answer, you have, a again, a game plan, and then you execute. Amen. Um, do you have anything to say before I uh, close out? No, I, I, I do want to thank you uh, so much for having me on the podcast. I, uh, you know, we've been talking about doing this for a few months now, actually, and we yeah. haven't had an opportunity. Things have been kind of crazy with how the world has ebbed and flowed <laughs> over time. <laughs> But I'm, I'm really happy that we got a chance to make it work. And uh, if you ever want me back on, I'm happy to be on. And if there's something your listeners want to know more about, have them reach out to me individually. Or if there's a heavier, deeper topic that's, that certain people reach out to uh, about as far as this podcast is concerned and we want to do a follow-up podcast, I'm, I'm game to do that too. That definitely sounds like a plan. Um, it was a pleasure. Uh, so to everyone, 
Thank you for listening. Uh, happy Levicity. Happy Hakuna Matata. Fuck being average. And we'll speak to you all soon. Shorty so bad she want numbers. Hop in the summer. If you can't fuck, I can't love you. If you don't talk, I can trust you. Keep it on honor. I used to stress out my mama. Living up home was my comfort. Now she retired in Tennessee. I got the back, but I'm stiff on the 90s. I might just pull up in a Hummer. Ooh.